This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The promise to Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed, we know from the New Testament, is ultimately fulfilled in the seed, who is Christ, who is a son of Abraham in the line of the covenant and the one through whom the blessings promised through Abraham come to all the nations. Welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined here by my friend and co-host, Dr. James Dolezal. And we are privileged to have someone whose writing we have both admired for some time on the program as our guest, Dr. Cornelius Venema is the president of Mid-America Reformed Seminary, and he's also a professor of doctrinal studies there. And he has recently authored a book. It's a collection, really, of essays called Christ and Covenant Theology, Essays on Election, Republication, and the Covenants. And for those of you who listen to this podcast, we'd like to offer you the opportunity to win a copy of this. So stay tuned at the end to find out how to register to do that. But Dr. Venema, thanks for joining us today. Well, I'm very pleased to be able to participate. I wanted to start out with some basic questions. The title is Christ and Covenant Theology. So maybe we'll just start with a big question from the title, which is, what is covenant theology? We talk about it a lot, even on this program, but this might be a good opportunity just to define it for our listeners. How would you define covenant theology? Well, that's a big question, but I would start with a simple observation The structure of the biblical canon, Old Testament, New Testament, is very familiar to those who are familiar with the Bible. And the term testament is another term for the word covenant. And so it already suggests to us that the story that is told us, what is revealed to us in Scripture, in the Old and as well the New Testaments, is a story of the triune God, the living God of Scripture, in his purposes, both in creation and in redemption, and in particular to establish and enter into a relationship of communion within which human life and fellowship with God can flourish. And so the story of the old covenant and the new covenant is that story. God created us after his image, created the whole world to bring glory to himself, And he entered into a relationship, a covenant with Adam and the human race and Adam before the fall. And he re-enters in redemption by way of the restoration of that relationship, a life communion with us as fallen sinners through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the language of covenant is aiming to give expression to the manner or means whereby The true and living God, whether as creator before the fall or as redeemer after the fall, aims to enjoy and provide for communion with himself on the part of those who are his people. Dr. Venema, in your book, which is really a collection of essays addressing different topics of discussion and debate in the reform community, you discuss at some length toward the earlier part of the book issues of the covenant of works as distinguished from the covenant of grace. And I wonder if you would give a quick description of what the Reformed tradition has historically meant by distinguishing covenant of works and covenant of grace. And then quickly as a follow-up to that, what does it mean to say that Adam himself was in a covenant of works, and why is that significant? Well, I'll do my best to be brief. If you would ask my students, they would say, I'm seldom brief, sometimes lucid, but seldom brief. But I'll do my best. Uh, The distinction between a covenant of works 
between God and his people before the fall, and then a covenant of grace after the fall is, as is probably known by many, a common distinction in the history of Reformed theology. It's probably most thoroughly presented in confessional form in chapter 7 of the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. And the idea is that even though the language of covenant is not explicitly used in the accounts in early Genesis, that after the manner of God's relationship with his people subsequent to the fall, God first entered into, and by way of what the Westminster Confession calls a voluntary condescension, he entered into a relationship of life and communion with Adam and Eve, and they as our representatives in them with the whole human race. It's termed often a covenant of works, though various terms are used. Sometimes it's called the covenant of creation, sometimes covenant of God's favor, sometimes a covenant of nature. The most common language is covenant of works because the emphasis is, though God entered that relationship by his own initiative and voluntary condescension, he did so in a way that stipulated by entering that relationship stipulated that Adam should live in life communion with him in obedience to his holy law and in a way that was pleasing to him. And upon Adam's failure to do so, and that set forth especially in chapter 2 of Genesis with the stipulation and prohibition regarding the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, historically covenant theologians would call that a testing I think it's Voss who calls it a concentration and testing of Adam in respect to the obedience that God obliged him. The language in the Westminster Confession of Faith is Adam was promised life, not simply life and fellowship with God, but the fullness of eternal life, were he to have obeyed. He was promised life on condition of personal and perfect obedience. And Adam's failure to do so by way of his original sin, transgression, and disobedience against God, Adam's failure had consequences for the whole human race, because in the language of traditional covenant theology, Adam is understood to be, referencing Romans 5, a covenant head and representative, so that when he sinned and disobeyed in him, the whole of the human race was included and implicated. We came under the threatened sanction or curse, the judgment of death and separation from communion with God. We, by virtue of Adam's act, the whole human race was plunged into sin and brought, as Paul says in Romans, under condemnation that brings death. Now, that's typically understood to be the broad context and framework within which the biblical account of God's purpose of redemption ultimately culminating in Christ unfolds. Christ is the second or the eschatological Adam, the eternal Son of God become man, entering into and assuming our flesh in order to do for us as our new covenant, uh, the covenant of redemption or covenant of grace, the new covenant mediator and head, to fulfill those obligations under God's law and to as well suffer the uh, consequences of our disobedience in Adam, namely condemnation and death by way of his work of atonement. 
So broadly speaking, uh, covenant theology is an attempt to articulate in a comprehensive way. People today like to refer to somewhat fashionably as the meta narrative of Scripture. What is that redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus? Uh, from what do we need to be redeemed? And how is it that Christ does for us what Adam failed to do and uh, suffers the consequences of Adam's and our sin and disobedience in our place in order to restore us as mediator, to bring us into renewed communion with God in the confidence that uh, the obligations of God's holy law that we did not meet but were disobeyed by Adam and by us have been fulfilled for us in Christ so that we have the promise in Christ of eternal life. I wanted to follow up on that and ask about the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant at Sinai. And I know your your book deals with issues related to republication and the Sinai Covenant. So I'm wondering, in the Sinai Covenant, there are a number of places where it says, do this and you will live. So I wonder, how does that connect? Does it connect, in your thinking, with that covenant of works? Or is this part of this gracious covenant, which you just described? Well, that's a uh, an important question, and it's an important subject that I deal with at some length in the book. I will be the first to admit as a theologian that it can sometimes sound rather arcane and uh, argument that only the theologians can really enter into with great understanding and zeal. What really is the issue? The fundamental issue is, in the Old Covenant history of redemption, beginning especially with God's covenanting with Abraham and Abraham's seed, and then subsequently in the giving of God's law in summary form in the Ten Commandments at Sinai under Moses, what is the essential nature of that relationship? Is God simply reinstituting at a different point in history and in different ways the covenant of works that obtained prior to the fall? Or is that covenant the beginning, the preparatory administration of the covenant of grace, which is to use older language, one in substance, though diverse in its mode of administration, is all that God is doing in covenanting with his Old Testament people, Israel, and especially through Moses at Sinai and the giving of the law, is that all fundamentally a redemptive project and a gracious covenanting that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, or was it in some measure distinct from what we have in Christ in the new covenant in terms of its significance as a covenantal administration? Was it a legal covenant ultimately, or was it a gracious covenant? And my argument is that though it's true that the law of God, which remains always the same and what it obliges, perfect obedience, love for God, perfect love for God, perfect love for those who bear his image, it functions in the covenant of grace in its first use as a teacher of sin, the so-called theological use of the law, and it serves as such to not only give a disclosure to the people of God with whom God covenants of what God wills in terms of 
having redeemed them, brought them up out of Egypt under Moses. This now is how you should live in my presence as my people. But it also continues to remind them and us, even in the new covenant, that no one can, by obedience to that law, ever be restored to favor with God. Because we cannot make amends for our sins. We can't undo them. We can never perfectly do what the holy law of God requires. And uh, we stand, therefore, always under condemnation that brings death. And so a, a significant feature of the Old Testament economy, even through Moses, was to prepare for the coming of Christ, the one and only mediator, the one and only lamb or sacrificial a victim who could actually do what the Mosaic law, even in its ceremonial aspects, the Levitical legislation and the like, typified and foreshadowed, but the reality is ultimately what we find in Christ. So the burden of my argument is just to leave all the particulars to the side, is that it's very important that we view the Old Testament history of redemption and even the administration of the covenant through Moses as a redemptive administration. It's leading the people of God in a manner of speaking by the hand, and as Calvin says, has a kind of preparatory nature, preparing them for the coming of the one to which this old covenant is always pointing forward. Even the promise to Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed we know from the New Testament, is ultimately fulfilled in the seed, who is Christ, who is a son of Abraham in the line of the covenant and the one through whom the blessings promised through Abraham come to all the nations. Now that we're focusing on Christ as the one who brings fulfillment for the covenant made with Israel and really fulfillment with regard to the covenant made with Adam, but unattained by Adam, is it right for us to think of Christ in his work on our behalf, his obedience unto death, his sacrifice and resurrection as effectively fulfilling terms of a covenant of works. And I I ask that only because I think we are rightly familiar with the repeated New Testament insistence that we are saved by grace, not by works. What does this have to do with the work of Jesus, though? Does Jesus save us by grace in terms of his accomplishments, or does he do it by his works? Uh, Could you speak to that briefly? Well, I would like to respond but to that by saying it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. Okay. The person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ as mediator is in its entirety a revelation and manifestation of God's unmerited favor. His sheer grace in granting to us and coming in the person of his own son to assume on our behalf obligations that we could not meet and only he, in our stead, by God's gracious provision, himself willingly assuming those obligations, does for us, also under the law, both in terms of what it requires and in terms of its sanction or punishment. Accursed is everyone who continues not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. It's interesting, Calvin actually in his institutes answers this question very directly. Do the works of Christ merit our salvation, or is it a matter of grace? And as I recall Calvin's answer in the section, and I believe it's book two, 
where he treats this question, uh, he gives something like the answer I just gave. Of course, at its root and source, all of it is an expression of sheer grace. But God's grace is not at odds with his justice. It's of grace, but in a way that recognizes and honors God's own adherence to his own truth and righteousness, that he will in no wise clear the guilty in the sense of not require in terms of his own righteousness and holiness that the wages of sin that we deserve to pay be paid. But in this case, he does so through the person and the work of the son whom he gives up and delivers over unto death for our redemption. So it's a very good question. And it's sometimes one of the objections that's made to too much emphasis on the idea of a covenant of works. You fall into allegedly a kind of legalism or uh, a failure to really adequately maintain and stress the sheer graciousness of all that God does for us in Christ. Dr. Venema, last question. Your book deals with all kinds of important issues related to the ones that we've talked about and related to covenant theology in general. I wonder, is there a book that you recommend as a kind of introduction to the idea of covenant theology, the way in which this covenant structure unfolds throughout the scriptures? I'm thinking that some of our listeners may be hearing this and, and maybe hearing it for the first time. And so, is there an introductory volume that's sort of your go-to for those kinds of uh, situations? I'll give you one quickly. Yeah. Uh, And it may not be entirely adequate, but Herman Bovink has a more general version of his much more uh, academic four-volume dogmatics. Mm -hmm. It's an odd title in English. It's called Our Reasonable Faith. Yes. I would say that his treatment there is less complicated and... um, difficult in reading, represents a pretty broad consensus view, the one I would hold to. That's a little question begging, but that's the way I would put it. (laughs) And I would would commend that. I don't know if it's available or not. I've long wanted to see it updated and improved with a better title, because the actual title in the Dutch was The Mighty Works of God. Sounds better than our reasonable (laughs) faith. No, it is available, and I would concur with that recommendation. So, we'll put you down as endorsing Bavink. Yeah, oh, yes. Very good. <laughs> well, Dr. Venema, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for your work over many, many years on a number of different subjects, but not least on this subject, Christ and Covenant Theology, Essays in Election, Republication, and the Covenants, published by our friends at PNR. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you again. James, we we just have a couple of minutes, but I wanted to ask you the question that we raised with Dr. Venema, and he clearly said it was important and complicated at the same time. This is the question. Why does it matter how we view the Mosaic Covenant? He goes to great lengths in this book to talk about how it's not the covenant of works all over again or an outworking of that. It's actually part of the covenant of grace. And my question is, for you, why do you think that matters? He seems to indicate that there are features of both, though he wants to emphasize the revelation of grace in the Mosaic economy. And of course, he's right to do that because it's in the Mosaic economy that God establishes 
temple presence and Levitical ministry and the sacrifice of atonement and all of these things, the presence of God at the blood-covered mercy seat, these are all things that point us unto Christ. And so the, the grace that is embedded or shown forth in the temple and its ministry is certainly a key feature in the Mosaic economy. But with regard to the law itself, we can sometimes think that, well, the law was meant as a guide to sort of hem in sin or to keep us in check. And yet Romans 5.20 says, the law came in, speaking of the Mosaic covenant, so that the transgression would increase. It's so counterintuitive the way that the law functions to amplify sin. Uh, Paul says something similar to this in Romans 7, that when, apart from the law, sin was dead. But when the law came in, sin became alive and he died. So that the law has this function of stirring up sin and making sin to appear sinful. And I think in this respect, when Paul elsewhere in Galatians says that the law was added because of transgression, uh, that's sort of open to some interpretation. What do we mean because of or for the sake of transgression. But in keeping with what he says elsewhere, I think it is to amplify the sinfulness of sin. Now, provisionally, that is addressed in the types of the temple and its ministry pointing to Christ Jesus. But I think in terms of the works principle, we actually see it's actually fundamental to understanding what Jesus does. He who is born under the law, that we uh, who are under the law might be redeemed to receive the adoption of sons, really understanding Jesus as under the law and what it is that he attains by working. And again, as Dr. Venema says, according to a beneficent arrangement, which God was under no natural obligation to institute, sets the arrangement by which Christ achieves our salvation. I was just letting you talk until you said the word beneficent. So now that we've gotten there, I think it's time for us to end for today. Again, just as a reminder for you listeners, if you're interested in getting a copy of this book, Christ in Covenant Theology, you can enter for the opportunity to win one. Uh, Go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a place for you there to enter your name and contact information. Thanks again for listening. Please pass along this podcast to anyone you think might be helped by it. We appreciate your feedback and we want to hear from you. So thank you as our listeners and remember to tune in next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. 